Isn't it astonishing, if you stop to think about it, if you were to read the Bible from cover to cover, how central, how central prayer is in human relationship to God. In fact, you might could argue that it is the very most characteristic observation of what it means to relate to God. We relate to him in prayer. I mean, the word pray or prayed or prayer, etc., is literally mentioned everywhere in Scripture. It's the most consistent activity that we see in people's relationships to God. From Adam and Eve in their dialogue with God in the garden in Genesis 3, it begins in prayer. To God telling Abimelech in a dream to return Abraham's wife and then the purpose clause, in order that Abraham might pray for you. We see the intercessory prayer. And of course, then again, Abraham praying for Abimelech shortly after, and on and on it goes. To be sure, prayer is meticulously chronicled and at times with vivid descriptions by the writers of Scripture. Of course, prayers are are observed and they're put into prose and poetry and songs. There's liturgy and prayer throughout the scripture. The whole temple service is a prayer service, even as today when you stop to think about it, what we do in this service, whether it's prayers of praise, whether it's prayers of confession, whether it's prayers of intercession, whether it's prayers of thanksgiving, we are a praying relationship with God. And that's significant, because then, how often have we stepped back and really thought about all of this? I mean, all of this religious piety under the title of prayer. I mean, have you ever really stopped and thought about the idea and the practice and what it means about God? I mean, without any instruction, we seem to have been born with this innate sense maybe a conscience sense, that there is yet another personal being in the cosmos. Prayer assumes someone is listening. Prayer assumes it's a rational being that is listening. Prayer assumes that it's a being who wants to know and to be known. Prayer, a kind of intimacy Achieving event, a hunger, a desire, a search, a yearning, a journey to get close to this being that we pray to. And of course, think about what it means about the nature of our world, the cosmos itself. For if we pray to God, we do so because we believe somehow this world and the way it operates and it's and in the way it affects us and, and its movements and order and all of it, somehow we believe that there is a being that's driving this boat. And we want to talk to him about how he's driving. We want to talk to him about what he's doing. We want him to tell us why he does what he does. And so we pray. J.I. Packer once explained in the context of this issue of free will and God's sovereignty He made the observation how it is that if anyone prays, they are confessing sovereignty, whether they've thought about it or not. Why else would we pray? Except that we believe God has power and authority to accomplish whatever he wants. And so today, as we are in this context of a sermon series in in Matthew, and particularly in the Sermon of the Mount, Christ continues his relentless crusade against false religion, false Judaism in that day, a Judaism that had wandered away, especially in the Pharisaic tradition, from the remnant, the faithful Judaism, a Judaism that would have readily welcomed and and seen even Christ the Messiah, but they had missed it. What do we want to learn here? Well, listen, remember, to this incredible moment. For in the Sermon of the Mount, in this, 
the scathing rebuke, if you will, and even trying to exasperate those to faith by showing how in their hypocrisy they could not save themselves, we hear this verse that introduced our chapter, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. As a result of being too people-oriented in their righteousness for personal gain, their righteousness resulted in no reward. It lacked the true transformative power of a true righteousness. And so our last sermon, we talked about this pretender righteousness. And we saw how the pretender or the hypocritic righteousness is not those who do one thing and say another. It's not quite what he was talking about, though that may be a result. But rather what we see is that it's the difference between the orientation of our righteousness. How it is that there is a kind of righteousness that exalts humanity and ourselves, and it's a righteousness and a kind of piety that, that, is, that is in form, but not in substance, genuinely oriented towards God. Where people are too big and God is too small. While pretending to be religious, they were really very worldly and worldly hearts, even in their religious devotions, doing them before humanity in a manner that might benefit themselves. We could talk more and more about that. But in this chapter particularly, having described this pretender righteousness, Christ then applies it to two or to three sort of pretender pieties, if you will. Service to the poor, almsgiving in relation to that, prayer, and then fasting. Today we pick up on this issue of prayer. And I want you to think deeply about it. Can prayer be powerless? Think about your prayers and how you pray. Think about what we might learn as a crucial mistake that perhaps all of us will need to confess about our prayers, particularly as that mistake exposes really a bigger mistake in the way we relate to God and to ourselves. So with that, let's pray that God would attend our time here. Father, we do thank you so much for your promise, a promise that is given to us that you will never forsake us. And we pray even now, don't forsake us. Fill the rooms of people's presence even now with your spirit, that illuminating spirit that enables our hearts to be open-minded. For we know we would be resistant in our pride to hear your voice. We would rationalize it and explain it away, compartmentalize it. But Lord, we need your help then. Open our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Give us rebirth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, notice the way that, that our section here in the Sermon on the Mount begins. There's a kind of preface, part one, which exposes again the false motivation and orientation of pretender righteousness or powerless righteousness. He applies the very thing he's been saying here to prayer in verse five, I mean six or five, I should say, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. And what do they do? Well, they love to pray standing in the synagogues on the street corners to be seen by others. And again, he gives this incredible stark promise. Truly, I tell you, they have received the reward in full and there is an irony to that. That is to say that they have puffed themselves up, perhaps. They have done that which would gain them power and prestige in the world, perhaps. But as the previous passage in verse 1 had said, they will have no reward from the Father. It does beg the question that we'll end with in the sermon. What is the goal of prayer if not, if not to engage God's ear, to engage God's sympathy, and presence. You see, like all pretender righteousness, the problem begins with orientation. This is important to the sermon today. Is it a God-centered orientation or a human-centered orientation? Is it about us, our prayers, or is it ultimately about God? Christ's point here in illustration form, true righteousness and piety must start with an uncompromised and undiluted proper orientation, an orientation that fits the truth and the facts about reality 
as it is God who is God and how he is creator of all things. And so Christ's point is illustrated. He says in this preface, when you pray, then go into your room. Now, again, the point of this passage is not it's, it's unlawful to pray publicly, and therefore all true prayer is only in the closet. It's not at all his point, because you see it all over the scriptures where it is actually instituted to pray in the services and to pray out loud, etc. But the point, of course, is being illustrated. Whatever we pray, whether it's publicly or privately, it ought to be as if you are in a private room, you have closed the door, and you are now praying to your Father. It's a good exercise for all of us who are public figures. Whether even now as I'm preaching, whether it's when I pray with you and in front of you and you as well with your family, when we close those eyes or when we do what we've got to do to get the world out of our vision, And we begin then to pray within that closed door between God and your prayer. Even if on behalf of the people who are standing in front of you, then it becomes a prayer in a certain sense. That's what he's saying here. Don't you see? Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. There's all this reward talk. I mean, at the end of the day, prayer is, and particularly here, he's talking about a kind of prayer, which is intercessory prayer or petitions. And so they are gone. He goes on to say, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask him. It's interesting how easy it is, isn't it? Particularly if you pray out loud, but even privately. To babble. Now, what does he mean by babble here? Oh, it's when we spin words and we put words together that we think will impress people. It's when we even, it's not just the form of the prayer that he's talking about here, but it's even the content of the prayer. When we pray things that are, as we'll see, not to the true interest of God. That's babble to God, we're told here. It's babble to to tell God what he needs to know as if he doesn't know it here. In other words, it's amazing how if you can think about your own prayer life, if you do pray, and I hope you do, how the way we pray can expose very deeply the way we relate to God. And is God only but a a kind of, of gift giver? Is he here for us? Is that the purpose of his existence and the existence of the world? Is it for us? This is beginning to get a little bit uncomfortable, isn't it? In fact, it almost feels offensive. I mean, pastor, how could you be talking about prayer and and aren't you taking love out of it? Don't we know that God loves us? Don't you know that God wants us to bring our petitions about our concerns and worries and anxieties? And I'm going to say absolutely yes but there's still this orientation issue. How do we think about our life and all of these issues that we bring to God in prayer? And are we willing fundamentally to submit them to God rather than push them upon God as if God needs to do what we want him to do? See, all of a sudden we're going to see there's a break here. How this thing moves from this human orientation that would that would see prayer as something we're doing in order to, almost, we wouldn't use this word, but to manipulate God by our piety in order to do something that we need and think that we want him to do, or prayer is an act of submission. That's huge. It's an act of humility, putting ourselves in the mercy of God, confessing that we are powerless, confessing that we are wisdomless, and that we need God to intervene most especially that we trust God to intervene in a manner that is consistent with his glory. For his glory, that's where there's reward. That's the way the world is made. And so notice carefully the structure, secondly. With this preface in mind, he then says, now here's how you should pray. And notice, there are six petitions, 
Six intercessory prayers in this prayer that he gives us. We know it as the Lord's Prayer. But here's the thing. It's very interesting that all of these prayers, first of all, are petitions or intercessors, intercessory. There's no here prayers of praise, invocation of God's presence, confession of sins, thanksgiving, all legitimate prayers. He's particularly focusing in on intercessory prayer. But this is where it gets very interesting. Maybe you haven't stopped to think about it. But notice, in keeping with the preface, what is the first three petitions praying for? And how does that differ from the second three? Well, clearly, the first three are praying for, and this is going to jolt you, God. They are three prayers for God. And then the second three are for us. The first orientation is thou, you petitions, divine orientation. These which relate to God, his kingdom and his glory and his will. And the second orientation is the us petitions, the human orientation, those related to ourselves. Now, this is not to make the two halves unrelated. As I hope you'll see, and we're doing this in a kind of two-part series. Part one is I'm focusing on the first three, the thou prayers. Next sermon will be on the second three, the us prayers. But you're going to see between the two-part sermon that the second part is going to be deeply influenced by the first part and how we would intercede and what we would intercede for and with what orientation. You see, it is only when one's primary concern focuses on God, the accomplishment of his purposes, that one can then confidently bring to him one's own present needs. Personal needs are kept in a proper perspective as always, always contingent on God's transcendent purpose that is ultimately always driven for his glory through the gospel of Jesus Christ in the world. And so as we will see, insofar as this represents a clarification as to this kind of law of prayer, if you will, we will see that in essence, prayer is praying for God to glorify himself. And so let's look at these three vows Again, concentrating on these first uh, three petitions. And the first one really is the most significant as the second two that follow are a kind of subset of the first. And the first petition is, hallowed be thy name. Now, when the scripture speaks of a name, particularly the name of God, it's not merely a label or a title which distinguishes gods from all others, like Sam versus Bill. But it's a description of God himself, his actual character. You see, by the name of God, we mean all those attributes under which he has revealed to us through redemptive history. His power, his wisdom, his holiness, his justice, his mercy, his truth, his personhood, his being. First Chronicles 16, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. And it goes on to explain that how that is to be come before him in worship who the Lord. See, the Lord is synonymous with bringing and glorifying the name of the Lord. God's name actually means then God himself. And so far as he has revealed himself to the world. This is particularly evident in Moses in Exodus 3 where Moses said to God, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? That's a very huge question. What should I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. I.e., the name is I am. It's me. It's everything I am. Me. Tell them, I, the Lord, has sent you, in essence. The God who has revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, etc. And so he goes on to say this very thing. I am has sent me to you. And of course that is the Lord, Yahweh. And so this prayer concerns God himself. But the second part then is we're praying God, remember our Father who art in heaven and I'm writing the petitions here. Would you, I'm praying 
for God to glorify his name. I'm praying for God to glorify his name. This word hallowed as regarding or treating something as holy, it's to set it apart. It's to make it sanctified, to to make the name, the reputation, the, the revelation of God a holy revelation, a revelation set apart from all other beings kind of revelation. To say hallowed is regarded as to be treated as a holy one. God, would you, Lord, would you accomplish this in the world? Would you do whatever you got to do that people would regard your name as holy? What a prayer. May the name be sanctified, was Calvin, John Calvin's translation. To sanctify the name of God means nothing else than to give unto the Lord the glory that is due to his name so that the world may never think or speak of him but with the deepest veneration, with the deepest respect, with the deepest honor, with the deepest affection. This is an incredible prayer for God. And the Lord tells us, if you want to pray, a powerful prayer, if you don't want to be a pretender prayer, then, hey, let's, let's reorient yourself here in your prayers. Ultimately, you begin by praying for God. Now, does this bother us? Is this making us feel uncomfortable? It kind of does, doesn't it? I mean, we are saturated in a world that we describe sometimes all sorts of isms, but I use the word humanism, a world that, that is very human-centric. You know, we lost that sort of from heaven to earth kind of pattern that we see all through pre-modernity. We receive revelation from heaven to earth. We receive value from heaven to earth. We receive purpose from heaven to earth. It's a heaven to earth, God to us kind of a pattern which this prayer very intentionally wants to follow as you'll see when he says, as it is in heaven, so is it on earth. It's this kind of orientation that got turned upside down in modernity and And it became from earth to heaven where we now, instead of receiving our identity from God to us, who we are as given to us, as an aspect of even of his revelation to us, now it becomes what we, by our existential existence and activity, how we construct our identity up to God within this plea, God, now you endorse it. It's a very radical orientation that I'm talking about here. An orientation that begins with God. And so to sanctify the name of God is to put it back on the throne of heaven, this God. To reorient ourselves to this God as he reveals to us who we are, what, to us what our purpose is, to us what it is that we need and don't need. Set it apart, transcendent, venerate it, glorify your name on all the earth that the glory of God may shine in the world and that the world would rightly acknowledge him. I begin to feel the love of this prayer, don't you? God, before I start anything, just sanctify your name to me and to my world. Glorify yourself. Let me see your glory. Let me see your purpose. Let me see your your will and do so in a manner that the world would fall on their knees and worship you. And saying all this is a deep offense to my modern sympathies. This turned everything upside down, and that's why I feel a little uncomfortable with it, perhaps. But it also challenges me do I think there is a being that exists worthy of that prayer? I mean, if you really stop and think about prayer and the way that Christ is exposing it to us, it's, it's asking us every time we pray to go into a kind of existential crisis where we are again put to the place of going, do I really believe God is God, that he exists? The God that said to Moses, I am who I am, do I believe that? 
Is God worthy of that kind of prayer? I mean, let's just be honest. There's not a person on earth or a thing or an it or a concept on earth where I should pray, hallowed be thy name. If God is God, infinite in his being, the creator of all things, perfect in his character, perfect in his thoughts, perfect in his power, perfect, perfect, perfect in his infinite existence. If that God exists, only then can I pray a prayer, hallowed be thy name. It's a request that God's person would be set apart in honor. Now, that the glory of God is the absolute universal orientation and ultimate purpose of everything in life and therefore ought to be the first thing we concern ourselves with in prayer is more than illustrated through redemptive history in Scripture. I want you, if you're there right now, you've been thinking hard, you've been really listening, I'm, I'm sure some of you are cackling as you've been trying to take care of the kids next to you, I know. But just for a moment, can I just bathe you a little bit with Scripture? I mean, just kind of take off the thinking cap a little bit and put on the feeling cap. Just listen to the Scriptures that I'm about to read you. I'm going to take you briefly through the whole of redemptive history and just a little glimpse of just how central this orientation is to all that has happened in redemptive history. I'll pick it up here. We'll pick it up with Moses. Heralding the word of God over the escaping Israelites, Moses is told to tell the people, quote, I will harden the hearts of Egyptians so that they shall go in after them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh. Did you hear what happened there? The whole exodus, everything that happened there, the greatest event in the Old Testament, second only to the creation itself. It happened very precisely that Pharaoh would be unglorified. Those, that power that the world all feared and revered and, and venerated and that he, God, would be venerated instead. Fast forward to Joshua, calling the disobedient Akan to, to reckon with the all-knowing God. My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. The advice to a protege, if you will, in saying, man, whatever you do, change your orientation. Job bowing before the righteousness of God and letting him have the last word in circumstances that would make our plague look tame. And here it is. Will you condemn me that you may be right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor, O Lord. Wow, an orientation that totally transformed one of the most suffering events in all of human history. The glory of God was worth it. All that suffering for Job was the conclusion. David in the Psalms, oh, how could we miss it? This great, incredible, special soldier of Israel, but a heart of flesh, soaring again and again in the Psalms with the greatness of the glory of God over and over. Things, Psalms like this, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork and on it goes. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. It goes on and on. Isaiah proclaiming the jealousy of God in his unparalleled story. I am the Lord. That is my name. As God defiantly reveals himself to Israel who are wayward. My glory, he says, I will give to no other. 
nor my praise to any carved idol. Jeremiah, warning against the, the neglect of God's glory, says this to the people of his day, hear and give ear. Be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before the brings darkness before your feet and stumble in the twilight months. Notice that, that consequential language there. Jesus is going to remind us of that. For there is no reward in a prayerless prayer. Ezekiel, God speaks through Ezekiel and reminds him that, that in their prayers for, for, uh, you know, for release and, and freedom and, and for redemption, he says to them and reminds them, just don't forget says the Lord, your God. Ultimately, if I answer your prayer, listen to this. If I answer your prayer, be mindful. It is not for your sake, ultimately, O house of Israel. Does that offend us? It's not really for you, Preston. Not ultimately. It is for you. Don't get me wrong. Love is part of the glory of God. We'll see how the glory of God is revealed most ultimately in the gospel of Jesus Christ in our salvation, wherein Christ is glorified in his mercy, glorified in his grace, glorified in his love. But we must hear it clearly that, that even that love and mercy and grace must be revealed as mercy, love, and grace in a manner in which it's executed. And so the Lord says that I am about to act, but for the sake, he says, of my holy name, I will sanctify my great name. I will then gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your land and I will sprinkle clean water upon you, dot, dot, dot. A new heart I will give you, dot, dot, dot. And then they shall know that I am the Lord. Daniel, in this incredible description of Nebuchadnezzar, who when he defiantly usurped God in his great power was reduced to to a mere animal on the slopes eating grass and how he was brought to his senses. And then he says this, lifted up my eyes to the heavens and my reason returned to me and I bless the Most High and praise and honor him with, who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion his kingdom endures for generation to generation for the glory of God. Habakkuk, Haggai, Zechariah, they all make it the very apex purpose of the world that God would be glorified. Then we come to Jesus. He teaches us that our purpose in life is to glorify God. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father. Not that they might give glory to you or us or me, but who your Father who is in heaven and while he himself raises the dead, Lazarus for the glory of God, he, he says so, he says, for the glory of God, he raises the dead. The illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And in spite of this, his omnipotent power, he walks towards the hour of his own death for the glory of God. He says it this way, the hour has come for the Son of God to be glorified. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose... For this purpose I've come. And that ultimate purpose is not for me and you. Even though me and you are in that purpose. He says it clearly. It's for this hour, this hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And for this purpose I've come to this hour, Father, glorify your name. And of course he finally prays with the deepest longings for his followers. He says, Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you've given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence. And then he talks about this, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see your glory. Paul, I guess it's getting tired, isn't it? I'm just hoping you're not thinking too hard. You're just feeling this incredible, overwhelming drama playing out drama, the glory of God revealed. Paul says it, you were brought with a price, so glorify God with your persons. So whether you eat or drink, or whether you do, do all in the name in the glory of God. Peter talking about whoever serves, let it be as one who serves in the strength that God supplies, so that in everything, when we serve, even in the church, 
and everything that God may be glorified. Of course, John over and over speaks to this. The lineage of God's glory is the ultimate purpose of all things. It's further illustrated in church history. I'm just going to give you a couple. I know this is getting tired, but I just need us to really stop and not just understand, but the gravity of this. I think of Augustine. The most important day of his life, his conversion, and here's how he explains it. O oh Lord, my helper and my redeemer, I shall now tell and confess to the glory of your name how you released me from the fetters of lust and from slavery to the things of this world. Concerning John Calvin, his biographer John Dellenberger makes the point that his whole life and his words and, John, and Calvin's words was to have a zeal to illustrate the glory of God. I wish I'd read this when I first got ordained. That'd be a great thing on my mirror. A zeal to glorify God. That's what every day should mean to me and my purpose. Jonathan Edwards, wow, did he say it in a profound way. As to the centrality of the glory of God, this summary perhaps is unparalleled. Here's how he describes it. All that is ever spoken of in all of the scripture is an ultimate end of God's works is included in that one phrase, the glory of God. The refulgence shines upon and into the creature and is reflected back into the luminary. The beams of glory come from God and are something of God and are refunded back again to their original, to God. So that the whole is of God and God and to God and for God is the beginning, middle, and end of all this affair of life. <laughs> wow, they can say it well. So here's what we're saying here. The glory of God must be first. That's it. The glory of God must be first in every prayer, in every purpose, in every decision, in everything. Why? Because God and God alone is worthy of such a purpose and such a prayer and such a decision. It is the object of our Lord's own prayers. Father, glorify thy name. When you come to Christ, you come for the glory of God. When you pray to God, you pray for the glory of God. When you worship privately or publicly, you worship for the glory of God. When you make decisions, you decide for the glory of God. I know I'm redundant. I can hear it now. You're being redundant. Yes, I am. Please, don't rush out of this thought. But then having focused on this first petition, the glory of God, this divine orientation continues. Because in effect, the second two, as you even heard in some of the quotes that I gave, are, are kind of the subset of that first one. For instance here, how is it that God is glorified among the nations? Well, as it pertains to the God's redemptive and, and purposes of revelation, as distinct but consistent with this common grace nature revelation, it's going to focus on God revealed by the coming of his kingdom. What is God's kingdom? It is, of course, God's sovereign lordship as it builds a kingdom that is not of this world kind of lordship. Speaking of the humanist kingdom. And so he says, thy kingdom come. By kingdom, it is, of course, the sphere of God's sovereign rule as here revealed through the coming of the kingly Messiah, Jesus Christ himself. Let me be clear here. What the kingdom is not, the kingdom is not state or statism or nationalism. My kingdom is not of this world. Render to God the things that are God's. Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He's speaking here of a kingdom distinct from the kingdoms of this world. Now, it's not to say that the kingdoms of this world are not divinely instituted. We know that the state is an institution of God. But that state relates to God's revelation in all of nature. There's a kind of common sense or, or common revelation to that nation. So that therefore humanity and in interpreting God through nature is the manner in which our nations are built and run. 
for all people of all faiths and none. It was a common grace. But here, particularly, God in his glory is always a glory that is fully revealed through Jesus Christ in the gospel of Jesus Christ specifically. And so here we have I, this, this idea of the kingdom of God. So where then do we see the sphere of the kingdom of God? Well, there's no question about this in Scripture, though we've tried to do all sorts of things to tame this. But where is that kingdom now in terms of a sphere? It is most specifically the church of Jesus Christ. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. This church here is related to the kingdom of heaven, of which now he's giving the apostles a a sort of architectural responsibility to build it and to open and close it. The authority of this church being to bind and loose, to open and close the very kingdom of God, which leads to salvation, is what he goes on to describe. The two, church and kingdom, are here used synonymously. There is no kingdom of God apart from the kingdom that is being mediated in, with, and through the church, wherein Christ is actually and really present, acting through a divinely appointed polity and order and worship. That is to say that that when we pray, thy kingdom come, we're praying that God in Christ would be our monarch. A monarchy in which God is the king, a governed society set apart from all other governing societies by its observance of God's laws, God's ordinances, and God's administration. Thus is called both the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, describing both the one who governs and the locale of that governance. That is to say, thy kingdom come is simply an extension, hallowed be thy name. Sanctify your name and let your name be sanctified there where there is people and place gathered together as a light unto the world. They're in the world, but they're not of the world. I'm at 135 Whitney, but we are not 135 Whitney. We are here, an oasis of a kingdom and a polity. It's true that the, the kingdom of God that that is the epicenter in the church, is then severally worked out insofar as the sovereign rule of Christ impacts our lives all through the week. But that is the kingdom acting severally, even as there's a kingdom that acts jointly within its organized place. And that is very clearly, this is not a sermon to do that, I've done it many times elsewhere, but very clearly in Scripture, we understand the kingdom of heaven to relate to this thing we call the church to sanctify thy name in the kingdom of heaven on earth as it is in heaven would be what? It would be to make it our greatest and highest aim and ambition that Christ and Christ alone would be glorified in and with and through his church, that Christ alone would be the exclusive king and lord of our conscience in this church, that we would not bind any conscience except where Christ has bound it, even as we would then turn to this next prayer to know how to do that. Thy will be done. Thy will be done. What's he praying for there? Thy will be done. The explanation here on earth as it is in heaven is crucial. You see, this is a will that is discerned not by observing circumstances in our world. It's not reacting to the circumstances. It's a will that transcends the circumstances. Now, where do we know that will? How will we have access to that? Private dreams and revelations where we're told all through the scriptures, particularly in the pastoral epistles and in revelations, that that all such revelations have ceased. They were unique revelations for the sake of bringing to us that very carefully regulated body of truth that we know as the scriptures of the Old New Testament. This from heaven to earth speaks to a revelation-based knowledge of his will rather than an experiential and human-based knowledge of his will. It is a reference to the will of God that cannot be known, you see, as resourced on earth. It is a supernatural knowledge related to God's revelation directly to us from heaven. He says it in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, all authority. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe what? 
all that I, says Christ, the monarch of the kingdom of heaven, that I have commanded you. Where would we know that? Well, John makes it very clear how Christ tells them that he must leave and be ascended into heaven, that he might send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit would give those, those 12 disciples who were in front of him at the time, would give those disciples the words that would become the very words of Christ. When I read black letter words in, say, the pastoral epistles, we must never forget I'm reading the words of Jesus Christ as given to the apostles by the promise that he gave them in this divine inspiration by the Holy Spirit that they might bring to us a revelation from heaven to earth. This is what we are praying for. Okay, so let's pull it together here. Got to close it up. This is a huge sermon, not because I made it one, but because I just can't think of anything bigger for us to think about right now. I want to ask you two questions. How do you pray? I mean, when's the last time we started our praying, praying for God, for his glory? for his kingdom, for his will, that he might be glorified. The power of prayer related to God's glory. I love that quote by Spurgeon that I put up in the beginning. When we pray, you see, if we want it to be an effectual prayer, we must remember that the goal of prayer is the ear of God. Yeah, kind of duh. And unless that is gained, the prayer has utterly failed. The uttering of it may have Kindle devotional feelings in our minds, he says. The hearing of it may comfort and strengthen the hearts of those with whom we have prayed. But if the prayer has not gained the heart of God, it will fail. A mere formalist can always pray so as to please himself, but the living child of God never offers a prayer to please himself. His standard is above his attainments. He wonders that God listens to him at all though he knows he will be heard for Christ's sake. Yet he accounts it a wonderful instance of condescending mercy that such poor prayers as we pray as his should ever reach the ears of the God of Sabbath. We must remember prayer is powerless if it is not conformed to the glory of God because the glory of God is the purpose that defines all other purposes. Whatever you ask in my name, Jesus said, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. We have made the mess of that passage, I've heard, and I know I have. But you just, it's just so simple when you stop to look at it, what he's saying. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. But here's a qualifier, that I might be glorified, that, 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 that the Father may be glorified in the Son. There it is. It used to be we'd say, make sure you pray in, in Jesus' name. And according to your will, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. But that becomes a mere formalism. As if to sanctify my desires, as if to sanctify my prayers, then we have failed the whole purpose of that statement. To say in the name of Jesus Christ means to submit all prayers to the name of Christ that the Father might be glorified and to truly live out that way. Now, what happens when God doesn't answer our desires? What happens when life doesn't go the way we ask God for it to go? Do we get angry? Do we get bitter? Do we get disillusioned? Well, you see, it all began with that orientation. If your orientation is humanistic, your relationship with God is going to be miserable. It really will. But if your orientation is proper to what the reality of life is, that God alone is God and his purpose, while we may not always understand it, it may be beyond our finite capacities, is a purpose that is truly in accord with love and mercy and grace and justice and holiness and all of that, then somehow we're not going to be quite so angry. We're going to go back to Job and we're going to say, how could this man have possibly endured what he endured? And it's simple, if not easy. His orientation. Let God be God. It's his glory. That's my purpose in life. 
And if this is to his glory, bring it on. Finally, I just need to conclude this. I wish I could speak more to it. There's one thing I didn't tell you about this passage. I wanted to leave it to last as it brings us to the table. You see, grammar is important in Greek. And the grammar here is interesting because the whole prayer is passive. It's a passive voice, we call it, or a divine passive. It puts the burden of this prayer on God, even as we're praying for God. That's why you have that language, hallowed be thy name kind of structure there in the English. It assumes that the honoring and the veneration of God, well, it assumes that ultimately only God can do that, that we can't. And so if you're here thinking, oh my gosh, I'm a horrible prayer, or my prayers are despicable, well, repent, repent. Your prayers are prayerless without them being for God's glory. But be of good cheer. The whole of Scripture brings us to Christ, who's the answer to this prayer. You see, and I'll get on this a little bit more next, next time, but in every petition, the answer ultimately is Jesus Christ. In every petition, Jesus was saying in so many words, if you are of the true Israel, and if you understood the prophecies, and you understood the purposes, and you understood all this redemptive fear, you would be looking at the answer to your prayer. I'm sitting right here. Pray this way. Pray for the coming of the Messiah, is what he's saying. In fact, the tense is eros, we call it. Implies that there's going to be an event that's going to happen. That's in keeping with the prophetic utterances throughout the age where there was this long expectation that at some point God would break in with a savior king, a mediator who alone could satisfy the law of prayer and all other laws. That in him we might therefore have God's ear. So here's the thing. As we come to this table, we don't rely on our prayers ultimately. We do want to pray the right way and for the right purposes. But ultimately we pray, God forgive me, for I don't glorify your name. Glorify your name in Jesus Christ and you have. And so God, apply Christ's labors of prayer for me. Indeed, that's what we see in Hebrews, where Jesus takes our prayers in a very incredible, merciful way and he reinterprets them into the kind of prayer that is efficacious for us. Which is why sometimes our prayer comes back with an answer we didn't expect. But the answer is always yes in Christ's name because the effect of that prayer channeled through the intercession of Christ by the Holy Spirit 